Hello and welcome to Zookeeping 101. This is the Zookeeper podcast where we take you behind the scenes talking to professionals in the industry about their stories, words of wisdom and journey so far to get to where they are today, really showing you what it takes to be a zookeeper. All views throughout the podcast shared are of those speaking alone and in no way reflect the collections they work for. So please come along for the journey, enjoy the ride and thank you for listening. Hello and welcome to Zookeeping 101. You're joined by me, James Dennis. I'm your presenter. I'm happy to introduce to you James Cretney. Now, welcome, James, to the show. Welcome to yourself. Thank you very much indeed. No, thank you for coming on. Now, if you want to introduce to the lovely listeners who exactly you are, what position you hold and, and where you work. Okay, so my name is James Cretney. I'm the Chief Executive of Marwell Wildlife. We also run Marwell Zoo in Hampshire, which we're best known for, but also have a, a number of uh, conservation projects all over the world, most notably, I suppose, East Africa, really, uh, particularly uh, Tunisia, Zimbabwe, used to, uh, Kenya, um, but other uh, parts of the, of, of the country as well. So a little bit in Asia with big cats um, and stuff in the UK as well. So that's what I do at the moment. Awesome, mate. That's a very, very large role. A lot of responsibility there. The thing is that um, you surround yourself with good people and that's how an organisation works. And I'm very blessed at Marwell that we've got a lot of very good people. Totally, totally. Now, obviously, to get to that position, you don't just roll into it. You definitely have to put the hard graft in. Um, and I'm sure everyone listening is going to want to know some of your your larger milestones, I guess, to get to where you are. And if you have any any stories or anything which, as I say, managed to get to the, the high-ranking position you're in. It's uh, very high-ranking. I mean, everything's contextual, isn't it? It doesn't always feel high-ranking. How do you get somewhere? I think um, you do work hard, is, is the point you've made, and you use opportunity. And because we all have opportunities, but the thing when opportunities comes around, you've got to strike and use it. And also, you can't underplay luck as well and again it's being ready to take those chances when luck comes about so when I came to Marwell they had been through a number of chief executives quite quickly um, we have a very we had a very very charismatic and well-known founder figure and I think it's fair to say that um, that was making it life difficult for a new chief executive to get started and, and go in the direction they wanted to with um, such a, a well-known father figure as it were almost sitting on their shoulders so I think what happened at the time is that the uh, the board were very keen to recruit from outside of the zoo world. And that is where I came from. Originally, I, um, I left school, didn't go to university. There were a very short spell in the city. Um, but my heart was in the army. So I managed to get into the army, did about seven years in the army, ended up commanding tanks in Germany, which is a long way away from running a zoo. Um, but then left the army, spent about seven years working in equine welfare, in the, the West Country. During that time, I, having not been to university, I took myself off and did an open university MBA. And then by the time I finished that, I got married. And then uh, I was looking for a new job. And then luck came along and I was able to find myself very quickly on the short list for this role. Wow, that's a very, very diverse background there. It's, uh, it, I guess it shows everyone listening that you don't simply just need to go down the, the traditional university volunteering and then obviously get the jobs and work your way up. I don't think you can work your way up, actually, in a lot of places. Um, because I just think that, you know, people talk of dead men's shoes, particularly in the zoo world. You know, there is a pyramid. There's not enough movement within those roles. And the easiest way, if you are a keeper and you want to get to the top, 
you know, what are you going to do to get yourself there? And what I often see with keepers is they spend too much time focusing on what they like doing rather than what they need to do. So if you've got a degree in biology, do you then need to go and get a master's degree? Or if you want to get to the top, would it be better to go off and do a management course or, or something like that? So you've got to think strategically how you can get to the top and leapfrog. And it might mean getting out of an organization, maybe coming back to it later on. But we get comfy very quickly and also time moves very quickly as well. Definitely, definitely. If you were to look back at maybe your younger self, but also talking to our listeners, have you got any any advice you may give looking back in your, your career so far? You say career. I suppose career and life get mixed up very easily, don't they? Um, and so regrets. Um, well, we should suddenly break into Frank Sinatra. I think you often regret things that you don't do rather than what you do do sometimes, unless what you do gets you into serious trouble. So, um, you know, there have been times in my life where I haven't taken, going back to what I said earlier on, opportunity or luck come your way and you don't move on them or, or, or capitalise on them. You know, having said that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm happy with my wider life where I am, and that's great. Uh, I suppose, if I tell my earlier self, I mean, you've got to make your own luck, haven't you? That's the other thing. Some of the pieces of work, because I was quite um, academically light, didn't do well at school. That was my big thing. So the Open University was really useful for me. I'm slightly dyslexic. So the thing about the OU is you don't need to be great at English. You know, as long as the examiner knows what you're trying to say, they'll give you marks for it. So that's really encouraging. Um, and then I, when I got to Marwa, I ended up doing a, a research degree as well, because I, by that stage, I had a thirst for learning and a thirst for knowledge. So that's a point, you know, I was still studying in, in my mid 40s, you know, time doesn't, you know, it, it doesn't stop, really. And, you know, I look back now, and I go, you know, would, would these, do these things help me get the job? I, I, does my MBA help me get the job? No, it probably didn't, actually. But I, I've certainly benefited it since then. Yeah. Totally. And obviously linking with all that, is there is there one main trait other than than luck? And I, I truly believe it's right place, right time most of the time anyway. But with with yourself, is there one main trait which which makes you stronger than most? I wouldn't say I'm stronger than most. I think the thing is, if you um, if you're weak in some areas, you compensate in others. Um, so you want, everyone knows what their gifts are and they also know what their weaknesses are. Um, and you can't always, I mean, you try and make your weaknesses strength, you try and plug the gap and you can train and all the rest of it. But actually what you've really got to use your skills to the, to the best of your ability, I think. Um, and at the time when I came here, having a generalist is probably what Marwell needed and someone that would listen to staff. You know, we were a very unhappy workplace at the time. Um, and so I suppose my gifts at the time were very much around listening to staff and trying to provide some stability and a foundation to move on from. And that was something that I was able to do, cultural change, you know. You know, when I was a kid, I, you know, like many of us, when I was a kid, I was bullied, you know. That means I don't like bullies, you know. I can sniff them out and I'll deal with them. So, you know, you use those weaknesses to strengths. I think that's, that's the way it is. And also realising that leadership comes in many, many forms, um, you've got to use what skills you've got, I mean, your style, and be authentic about it for sure. Totally. And obviously, as as we all know, the zoo industry can sometimes get very hectic and, and everything can happen all at once. How how do you manage to stay productive on a day-to-day -day running when you've got everything going on, whether it be the managing of the staff through to the managing of the collection? Well, I think, again, you know, I don't do all that kind of stuff. You know, the reality is, the higher you get an organisation, the less operational stuff you do, the more strategic stuff you end up doing. So my horizon 
is it goes goes further into the future. But again, as a leader, you need to be able to, be able to move between what's happening in the next half hour and what's going to happen in ten years' time. So you are you are moving between those two uh, those two timelines, I suppose. But you know, again, it's realizing where your skills fit, where other people's do, and surrounding yourself. If you are a generalist, as I've said, I am. You know, you, you are a jack of all trades. MBA is good for that. But you're also a master of none. And as I said, I didn't start off in the zoo world. I haven't started like you have. I haven't started at the sharp end, you know, with my animals. And I haven't got that skill set. So, you know, you don't pretend you have got it either. You make sure you are surrounded by good people. And I'm very fortunate that we've got some terrific people here, as I've said. And, and, you know, so using people and delegating is, you know, I think what you need to do because otherwise you become a log jam you know if everything so i don't like the word director you know i think it's uh it's quite a strong metaphor you know just the director directs everything but they can't can they they've got to delegate they've got to let the experts do it and some things what you've got to do as a boss is you've got to get out of the way of people because they want to do something and you can get in their way very easily and also you can create work for people very easily as, as, a, as a boss. So I'm very new for that. You know. That leads perfectly into the, the building of a team. And obviously you're saying how, how effective a team is and, and basically down to the success of, of the collection. Um, now, with regards to that, anyone listening, and this is at any level, what what do you what do you look for when employing not only a, a keeper, but someone within your team? And I guess what can someone look to to create an all-rounded approach to make them i guess good for yourself i think you know um it is interesting when you employ stuff how some people do really really well and some people less and you look at what differentiates them and i'm not suggesting you, you can't make up for years of experience i get that but you know at most basic level you know, as a matter if you're keeping or if you're an accountant you know, these are hard skills many of which can be learned it is harder to learn how to smile for some people you know, and we're all guest-facing organisations that require excellent guest service, looking after people, the people that come here, look at the animals and pay our wages. So what I'm going here is, you know, actually to become a rounded person within a team, you need those wider team skills of compatibility. What value do you bring to the team beyond your own technical expertise? You know, are you, are you friendly? Are you courteous? Are you on time? Are you dependable? You know, one of the interview questions I always ask is, you know, what would your teammates say about you? How would you be described? They, if you're lazy or you're a gossip or you're not that helpful and you, you're sick half the time and all that and the other. You know, th these are things that fall apart. We've got somebody here who we've employed and they are, it's amazing how quickly some people make a name for themselves for the right reasons. They absolutely can do. Started with us. He's been promoted several times internally because there's nothing he can't do. He won't turn his hand. He started with us way under his own capability we knew we knew that but that's all the, the only role we had at the time he wanted to come here people just love this of these individuals yeah no totally totally and this this leads to one of the biggest levels definitely um i guess my level down in the keeping realm is this debate on what is more desirable within the industry is it three years of, of experience or gaining that degree um, in education and, and that is asked too many times a day at down at student level all the way through to those training levels from from your perspective and we've touched on it briefly but how would you answer that question okay so i think that, you know, the trouble is these are generalizations aren't they you, know, you could have someone that's that can't even spell their own name but is capable is a valued team player they're they, they still intelligent individuals that get stuff and get on with it and i'd rather have that than, than a you know 
with a PhD. You know, it's uh, you know all we can't do I think, is having that argument where it's one or the other. You know, what you want is the whole lot. And you know, you can have three years. If someone said to me, you can have three years experience. You know, is it three years experience or is it one year's experience times three? You know, because there's a big difference there. You know, it makes sense that we are as a sector becoming and should be more and better qualified. Keeping animals is about understanding their biology and their behavior. Having having a, a background academically in that area makes an awful lot of sense. But sure, there's tons of other stuff that's valuable as long as it's valuable experience and not bad experience. Totally, totally. And I, I guess that leads perfectly on to the is there, if someone was trying to CV build, if someone was trying to make themselves shine a little brighter in an interview, gaining maybe some additional skills? Now, that can vary between anything from, I guess, first aid training through to tractor training, through to in the field, you know, research skills. Is there anything that you would look for which would make them shine a little brighter? I think it goes back to that point you made earlier on about your know, team players. I mean, firearms cover or first aid cover, or whatever it might be, and how do you get people to volunteer for this stuff? Well, I'd like to think if I was a young keeper, I'd be doing all of that. You know, you get, and you do, you get some people that just take it on, take it on, and it, you know, it shows more about the attitude of the individual than the skill set. You know, yeah. going back to MBAs again, someone said to me once, you know, actually the, the the wrapper of an MBA is more important than the product. It shows you you've had the tenacity to do something, particularly at distance learning for five years, whatever it took. Actually, if you're the kind of individual that volunteers to be a first aider, volunteers for the tractor training, volunteers for the firearms training, volunteers for that extra shift, is always smiling, is always can do, you're not going to play that level for long because you're going to have an interview and everyone's going to go, well, that person's going to be a shoot. Let's get them in there quick, you know? Totally, totally. And at Marwell, I guess this is being a little bit inclusive to yourselves. What would you say your your team, your keepers, but also your team in general, is there a defining trait which makes them almost unique within the industry? Is there one trait which defines them as a whole? To be honest, I don't get involved in the keeper interviewing. I, know I did eavesdrop an interview once and I'm absolutely gobsmacked at how... Um, detailed forensic it was. So I think the standard, I would say this wouldn't, I, I think the standard is quite high. And the expectation that is put on keepers to think independently and beyond the immediate answer for me, was, it was absolutely amazing. But yeah, you know, I, I, it is a serious business keeping that has changed out of all recognition. Yeah, no, totally. Totally. Um, now, we are heading towards those those big questions in this podcast, and it is uh, very much uh, up for debate and up for a conversation, which I feel like you might be up for, uh, James. So we'll, we'll see how we get on. The The first question is something to do with, I guess, the, the demographic age of our, our keeping teams uh, across the UK, across Europe, and, and also across it's matched in America. Um, America have done a demographic survey and they seem to see that their keeping teams checking out around the age of the early 30s. So we seem to be losing a lot of that age in that mid range. Um, now, there's many reasons logically why that could be. Um, and it is up for debate, all of those. But it, I guess, is there any way that you feel we can counteract that? And, and maybe in, in other words, I guess, for listeners listening, talking to them about how to cope with the pressures of what comes with that age and how to counteract it? Well, I think, I mean, if you're referring, I mean, <laughs> there's not much I can do about ageing, it happens to all of us, but if you're referring to that demographic drop-off, I think and it's something we, we looked at at Marwell some time ago, is, 
in all honesty, and it might be a bit controversial here, but you know, what is the expectation of going in at a certain age into an industry? You know, as an employer, are we expecting to keep all our keepers indefinitely? Whereas in actual fact, the view we had was actually probably not. And the kind of folk we were interviewing, they loved their animals, but they were intellectually curious. They obviously wanted to be a keeper. Something they wanted to do is very important for several years. And then they wanted to go on to do something else. We'll come on to salaries, I'm sure, later on. But you know, how realistic is it to be a keeper you know, in your late 30s, 40s? That's a difficult one. Or is it springboard into, because at the end of the day, you know, as you know, biodiversity conservation organisations, there are many avenues which people can go into from a background in keeping. But it does mean going back to, you know, looking strategically at your career and where you're going to take it. I think that's a great shout. Obviously, it is exactly that. It is uh, in those early 30s, people will be thinking about creating families. And obviously, the wage does play a part naturally in that. And um, obviously, it is a debatable thing in the industry. But you're exactly right. Is There are many avenues within the industry. Um, it isn't simply just the zookeeping. It is much more broader than that classic stereotypical look from the past of how you poo-pick your enclosures, effectively. So, no, totally, totally agree. It's uh, something which we may be losing them, but it doesn't mean we are losing them from our industry. Uh, correct. And I think, you know, again, losing them, you know, as long as you're not losing the knowledge and the skill set sectorally, is that a problem? Debate. You know, I myself have not, you know, I've, I've had three you know, major careers in, in my life. One was in the military, one was in equine welfare, and one, one's in conservation. So, you know, it's, it's all part of the journey, isn't it? Yeah, no, exactly that. Part of the journey is, is the best way to sum that one up for sure, for sure. Um, now we move on to our, our second question. Um, this is something which is very much incoming in the industry. Um, obviously, there's there's new uh, legislation coming in alongside zoos, which are changing the way we work and we present ourselves. Um, a very large one of those is in conservation, and it is is something all zoos do. We maybe don't shout about it as loudly at times as we maybe should, um, but I think this will encourage that. And the question I'm going with with this is that with conservation, it's no longer adequate enough to just simply be giving funds to a charity. You have to actually be involved directly um, in one form or another. So I guess the question is, with unlimited funds, what would you do to to counteract this change but also what are you doing already to to already it's very blasé but to tick the box but also to go further and achieve this this goal okay so I mean, that's a really big question and i think it, it's a debate that's ongoing because i think if you're talking about legal uh legislation there is a limited understanding to some degree as to what conservation is what is conservation where does it start where does it end um Marwell's just released its new conservation strategy. We're looking at what we call conservation health, which is looking at the unique capabilities of zoos and how they can be used for in situ, ex situ, but capitalizing really on the one health models. So saying, you know, actually the world you know, we, is about animal, people and ecosystem health. Because at the end of the day, that is what we are. The conservation of the species, conservation of the planet, its natural resources, you know, it all flows from that and a wider understanding of the impacts of conservation intervention across those three areas. So I think, you know, historically there's been a view that actually conservation is all about taking critters to, you know, far off places, opening the correct level and run off. You know, conservation is more demanding, it's more nuanced than that. 
uh, we have to show how we are affecting change in our own backyards as well as overseas. So that is an ongoing discussion, I think. So I think there's a lot we can do. If you take that model, for example, there's a lot more we can do to leverage conservation output um, across the across an organisation and really, if you like, sweat the capability of a zoo. It's visiting uh, footfall with its staff, with its facilities, its grounds, and what it does overseas, and the impact it has with its, its partners, its business partners, wherever it works, its academic partners, if it's fortunate enough to have them. And there's an awful lot of stuff going on there, which if you join the dots up between, there can be an awful measure of, there's an awful lot of conservation output that can be, can be driven from that. So yeah, organizations need to show that. And I think if you're a small organization, it's about taking baby steps. And if you're a bigger organization, then quite right, there's more expected of you. But I think that's how we will cut that up. We want to this year certainly start introducing a lot more local conservation to, you know, we do a lot of work you know, in Kenya or Tunisia or wherever it might be, but there's equally important stuff happening in our backyard that we need to do. And also as a large charity, you know, part of the voluntary sector in our local community, how do we engage with volunteers, our local community, citizen science, these these things really to try and drive greater awareness now from our back door. Yeah, and that, that's a really, really interesting point. Obviously, there's many zoos who are now releasing these conservation officer roles to to counteract this change. So I think you're totally right. I think it's taking responsibility as a collection as much as in a single position um, and everyone taking a collective role in it, which is is a great aspect to look at. Now, the final question. I'll be happy to know there's only one left of these big questions. Um, and that is, it, it comes with collection planning. Now, it's something that everyone loves to be part of. Everyone feels, you know, everyone's got an, from the lowest level, everyone has an animal they would love to bring to the collection through to the general attraction level of the collection. Obviously, a collection plan is very important, does carry with it a lot of weight. Um, at that Marwell, what I guess what would define your collection as being unique within the industry? From a unique point of view, you know, historically Marwell had a reputation for its ungulate collection, um, and equid, and I think having a number of animals which are particularly, you know, vulnerable and endangered. So that's what's marked as our historic, and that's fine. Um, but I think as we move forwards. We have to make sure at the same time you've got a number of animals which are these these words I use are pretty crude, so your viewers will or listeners will forgive me, but of sufficient commercial value that will drive footfall. At the end of the day, you haven't got the footfall, you haven't got the money, you haven't got an organization. So we've got to be mindful of that. So there's a number of challenges within the zoo sector at the moment about moving out and displaying them, you know quite rightly as welfare standards improve all the time you know, most of these critters do not want to be seen uh you know, a lot of the cryptic and they, they're, they're secretive and as you improve the the welfare value of a, of a enclosure for example invariably you make the thing either to see so you know how do you use technology to get around that or better interpretation or use of volunteers or enclosure design to, to, to mitigate these things those are the things that uh, one also has to think oh, collection plan thing you know it, it always seems to be spoken of as this sort of holy grail if you like of uh, sector and i don't think it, it doesn't have to be it's just having something with a methodology around it says this is why we do some stuff if you want to engage people in the natural world you need to have animals which people can get up close to yeah it, it, i mean from your perspective is is a collection plan something which everyone's involved in or is it simply for management or, or is it, how does it how does it go about how who's i guess who inputs into a collection plan well i think a collection plan is 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 derived in many ways a methodology that's 
taken from your conservation framework or strategy or whatever you want to call it. And there will be some principles around, you know, a, a collection plan, therefore, you know, the picture is therefore painted because you believe in these uh, you know, governing themes and you have this shape real estate or this keeping expertise, you know, who gets involved. You know, I don't think this is just kind of like playing top trumps and who'd like to have what, you know, it's why are we having this stuff in the first place? Um, what criteria are out there which are, which are going to sort of govern what we're doing? Let's set a strategy. You know, you get those folks in the room that have got relevant expertise that are going to help shape the thing. But you also need to have engagement so that people understand it and also feel part of the journey. And taking people on that journey is is absolutely part of leadership, and that's what we've got to do. Make them feel you know part of the part of what's going on. Totally that, totally that. Now, yeah, that is the end of the big questions. We've completed the the, the three for that one. From uh, I guess starting the industry from the lower levels of keeping. It's very easy, we've discussed it throughout this podcast, to look up to the the heavy heights of your CEO levels and your director levels and to, I mean, naturally, awe over them. You're inspired to to try and get to that level. But obviously, with regards to that, how would you truly describe your role? How is, is obviously, from below, we see the responsibility, we see the dedication, which generally goes all the way up the system. But how would you describe your, your role truly? I'm responsible to the board and board of trustees for, for, for Moral Zoo. So it's that, it's that apex, if you like, where everything eventually comes to. And the responsibility, you know, you're paid for carrying the can, aren't you, eventually? If things go wrong be employment relations or animal issues or the place burns down. Um, yeah, it's the chief exec. That's what you pay. Totally. Okay. So we're going on to a fairly nice bit. This is the quick fire rounds. Um, as quick fire as it can be anyway. Um, so some fairly light hard questions. Um, to kick us off, what is your favourite animal? I always say it's the last one I looked at. I'm sucker for for horses, you see. So I love giraffes as well. Hoofstock, really. Yeah, you're definitely in the right place with your, all your hoofstock then. What would you say the best side of the industry is? The industry as a whole, I would say the friendly nature of the industry. I think um, we're very sharing, interested in, in, one, in one another, what we're doing. Um, and I think it's a kind industry and I think the people I've met in it are, are by much. Totally. Um, okay, so the next question is your top tip for well-being slash mental health. Um, obviously a very large topic in, in life as a whole. I would say as a whole, um, I think it helps if you have a faith. I have a faith. Um, personally, I'm a Christian. Doesn't matter what you are, as long as you have a framework uh, that makes sense in your life, I think that helps. Uh, I mean, in all seriousness, I think surround yourself with good people um, is a good one. Um, get off social media. You know, a lot of the stuff we know, it's very easy to get pulled in to a toxic environment where it becomes normalized and then you're part of it if you're not careful. Um, I mentioned bullying earlier on. You know, if you are part of a toxic culture and you don't like it, it's hard. You can't just say get out of it, but you know, if you can, do so. If you work for a good organization, you need to call it out and you need to be known for not buying into it. I think these things help. But yeah, surround yourself with good people and take pride in yourself. You know, keepers do great work. Um, zoos do great work. We're we're part of a we're trying to solve help a bigger problem and i think we can take great comfort from the work we do so giving yourself a break and saying actually do you know what i do great work i'm a professional person standing up for that i think it's a really good first step to do. Is, is there the anything that you would improve within the industry 
not so much the industry. I mean, I think you know it's up to us to change it, isn't it? It, it upsets me that we aren't given the for what we actually do, and I think that was borne out during COVID, um, and that we weren't part of the, the sort of viewed as being part of the cultural sector, and we didn't uh, get a support beyond you know, furlough, for example. We, you know, you certainly can't furlough keepers if you want an animal collector looks after. So. There is a lack of understanding as to our relevance. Now, whether that's our fault, we should have done a better job telling people or not about it, I don't know. But I think that's the, the thing I'd like to change most. I think, um, literally, as, as we're speaking almost, the you know the IUCN uh, statements on the roles of zoos uh, in, in conservation, absolutely pivotal, I think. And I think things are going to change quite quickly because I think that message will actually flow quite quickly into the, the, the wider media and um, we'll be cut the conservation zoos will, be, will become better entwined in, in just the common lexicon but i think um up till now it's been really quite hard to make the points to what the zoos be, do beyond almost regional tourism no great great answer very much so okay so a nice one uh, a zoo you would want to visit globally and why i haven't seen many of the zoos in the states so I'd like to go over there actually yeah they've uh, definitely got a fair few over there okay so in 20 to 30 years, will zoos still be the same to what we see today? Uh, 20 to 30 years. I would say largely yes, actually. I would say that. I mean, how much have they, how much have they changed in the last 20 years? Go back, if you go back to that, that model, the evolution of zoos by George Rabb, you know, the one everyone's familiar with, the, the, the three or four stages, you know, actually we're probably due a new iteration of that. But, you know, at the end of the day, the public's appetite for coming to zoos is strong. It always has been. Um, something about getting up close to, to nature and seeing that diversity is important. People are going to work, want to work, work in zoos. You know, legislation may well change a few things, um, but also by the same token, you know, we discussed, you know, the IUCN's latest viewpoint. You know, the role of zoos in it and um, you know, ex situ breeding. You know, more may be placed upon us to, to do these things. Zoo practice in the field as well. Uh, you know, those veterinary skills, those handling skills, those keeping skills are, are, are needed. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Now, who would you say your idol within the industry is, if any? I've been very blessed with knowing um, a lot of those characters that have been really helpful in my career. I tend not to have idols. I don't think they're healthy, actually, in any walk of life, really. There's a lot of people I thoroughly respect. But um, every, every situation is different, isn't it? But the likes, when I came in, so the likes of people like Simon Tong, uh, Mark Pilgrim, David Field, uh, these characters have been uh, all you know, pearls of wisdom in my ear. Um, and I've benefited an awful lot from listening to them. I totally agree. Um, now, a nice, uh, a fairly easy one, but it might be actually one of the most difficult, is can you now sum up the industry in three words? I should have thought about this. I should have had this great enthusiasm. You know, you talk to keepers about their animal. Uh, love that they have and enthusiasm they have and also the knowledge they have is just breathtaking actually so we're very blessed with the people i mean i said so, you know, you know so the best part of my day is, and every friday i tend to have a cup of coffee with the team once again see somebody else and it's just realizing that you are in the company of, of such expertise is is, a, is truly amazing and um, obviously from all of us the listeners and myself i can't thank you enough for coming on james it's 
been great to say we are sadly at the end of the episode hopefully you've enjoyed yourself but no thank you very much thank you for coming on it's been a been a real honor to have you on and have you uh, discussing your side of the story my pleasure thank you very much goodbye best wishes and that concludes this week's episode what an amazing guest and an amazing time we had now if you have enjoyed it please do subscribe on instagram facebook or our podcast channels to zookeeping 101 I can't express how thankful I am personally from a fellow zookeeper to have you along for this quite amazing journey learning about everything zookeeper. Otherwise, please subscribe. Thank you for listening and see you very, very soon. Bye.